Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Thanks, Andrew. Welcome to CBC this morning in the room online later on. If we haven't met, my name's Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. And today we are in that long chunk of scripture that Andrew Banks just read for us, Colossians 2, 6, all the way through 15. And I'm not going to lie, that's a lot of text. And, and actually, we have a sermon meeting on Fridays. And really, I just present my outline to this team. And they tell me what's bad. And then they give me good ideas. And then I take credit for their good ideas, right? It's what it means to be in management, everybody. And so as uh, we were talking this week, we talked through the sermon. And one of the members said, hey, can I just pray for you at the end? I said, sure. And she started her prayer, I'm not kidding like this. Dear God, please give Charlie wisdom on how to make this shorter, right? So it was a good start to the sermon this week. And why I say that is because we, we have a, a lot of text. And, and why I want to tackle all this text is because I think Paul is making one overarching point to the Colossian followers of, of Jesus. And so we're going to miss some nuance in the middle of this, but I think it's worth it. And I say that to say this, if you have any questions over some of the wording, because there's some really interesting wordings in this text, you can send questions in, sermon questions at crossroadsbible.org, and I'll deal with them either on a Sunday morning or I do a midweek Facebook Live that we finally figured out after six months at 2 p.m. on, on Wednesday. So if you have questions, send them in. But today, the whole section that Paul is dealing with is really talking about three things. It's talking about about influence in in identity and action. There's one study that I remember I read years ago, and it blew me away. I have a fascination with New York City. I love New York City. I got engaged in New York City. I did my honeymoon in New York City. My wife and I used to go there about once a year or so. And one of the first times I came back from New York City, my best friend sat me down and said, you can't go again. You are more mean when you come back, right? And my point is, I'm not, I'm just honest because New York City people are honest. There was a study done by a prof at New York University a couple years ago. And he talks about the relationship between influence and identity and action. I'm going to read you some of this. He did a study basically on how words or how prompts can change how you behave. And so he did a study with two groups. It was a word association study. And he said the first group had a, a, a puzzle they had to put together with words like aggressive, rude, disturb, infringe. And, and another group put together a word study with, with words like respect, considerate, patient, and courteous. When they got done with this exercise, the whole goal was that they walked down the hall and they were told at the end of the hall is a man that you need to talk to to turn in your study. The whole point of the exercise was this guy was, was going to be in a conversation with somebody else and they wanted to know how long these people would wait before they interrupted. These are New Yorkers, everybody. Okay. So they took the two people and they said that the, the, the group that had the words associated with being rude usually interrupted after about four to five minutes. They said the group that had the words that were kind, like courteous and patient and respect, they say 82% of them, an overwhelming margin, waited the full 10 minutes until the, the prompter had to stop them and say, you didn't cut in yet, you should have, right? How we are influenced shapes how we think of ourselves, and then it shapes how we act after that. We know that to be true. 
Statistically, we know that to be true, and anecdotally, I know that to be true. I'm a dad now, and my life looks different on the day-to-day than it did 10 years ago. Just this week, my wife said, hey, some friends are getting together for another friend's birthday on Saturday night. I said, great, what time? She said, it's dinner. It's at 8 p.m. And I said, are we in college? I said, what is 8 p.m.? Like, what is going on with that craziness, you know? And I realized in that moment that what has happened in my life has shaped my actions day-to-day. When Paul talks to the believers in Corinth, He in this passage is tying together how their influence shapes their identity and how their identity shapes their actions. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we dive in, we're going to do what we always do on Sunday morning. We're going to spend some time and pray because we live in a culture full of criticism. And our goal this morning is to come together and ask the question, how is the Holy Spirit shaping my spirit this morning? What is God trying to teach me? We want to put aside the critical spirit this morning, and just say, hey, where can I join in the conversation of faith? What is God doing right here, right now? Because if you're watching or if you're here, it's not by accident. God is good. So I'm going to ask that you pray to yourself and just ask that God teach you this morning. And then I'm going to ask you to pray for me as we unpack some texts. So, so let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can be here, that we can open up the scripture and See how the Spirit prompted Paul to write these words that are applicable to our lives a couple thousand years later. I pray that as we talk through our text that you teach us, that you show us the beauty of Jesus, and that it changes how we act in the day-to-day. I'd ask if you are comfortable, take a couple seconds and just say a prayer that the Spirit might do something in your spirit this morning. ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job teaching through the text and showing the character of God in the scriptures and the centrality of Christ this morning. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen, everybody. You got a Bible? Go to Colossians 2. We're going to stick there this morning. We're going to pick right back up in uh, verse 6. It starts like this. Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Paul uses this text to set up where he's going. This actually, he's about to tell them what to do. It's an imperative in the Greek, meaning this is what you're supposed to do. It's a command. And this is the first imperative we see in the entire book of Colossians. He's got a chapter and a half in before he starts telling them what to do. And just as a quick side note, I love that idea that what Paul is doing is building into, look at the beauty of Christ. This is why you're supposed to live this way, because I just spent a chapter unpacking how great Jesus is. And that's what I want my church to be. That's what I want my community to be. That's what I want my family to be is a group of people that doesn't just proclaim to act right because you're supposed to, but we proclaim to act right because we know the foundational motivation of our behavior, which is the centrality and beauty of Jesus that aligns with how God created our world to flourish and function. So we are a group of people that are always motivated by the why and not the what. And spoiler alert, the why is Jesus, everybody, okay? So Paul says, now that we've established how great Jesus is, let's get into what it does for you. And so he says that you are going to continue to live your lives in him. That phrase in him, Paul uses, specifically Paul uses 164 times in the New Testament. 
It's kind of his go-to phrase to describe followers of Jesus. One theologian said Paul's perception of his whole life as Christian, as, as a Christian, its source, its identity, and its responsibilities could be summed up in these phrases in him. This is the centrality of the life of followers of Jesus, that we are in Jesus. And so what Paul's going to do in this text, we're going to jump around a little bit. What he's going to do in this text is he's going to unpack what it means to be in Jesus in the second half of this text. So before we even get into the next phrases, we're going to go to and see what he says about what it means to be in Jesus. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, he continues on and he says, this is what it means to be in Christ. We're going to see it's three things. He says, you're going to be in Christ for in him... All the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you have been filled in him, in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. We've talked about this at length. You can go back last fall and listen to our section on Colossians 1. But when it says that Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form, it really means that he is all the things God is that we can, that, that we can see. It means there's no part of Jesus that isn't deity, Right? But, but when he says fullness, it's not just that Jesus is all things God is. He's literally making a case to the Colossian followers of Jesus that he's all the things you need him to be for salvation. The story of the Bible is a story of God reclaiming his broken creation, redeeming and restoring and renewing, replacing joy where there was grief. And so what Paul says is in Jesus is all of that, because these guys, we're going to talk about it more next week, but but these guys have said, Jesus is good, but he's not everything you need. And Paul is saying, Jesus is everything you need to be saved. Everything. So if you're at a church, if you're in a small group, if you're somewhere, and they said, Jesus is a good start, and butt follows that, get your butt out of that place. You're like, wait, did they see that? That's right. Jesus is all we need for salvation. And that's comforting. Because that's where grace begins. It means I don't have to do anything. And that's hard because that's where grace begins and grace is difficult. My least favorite thing, we went to a birthday party yesterday outdoors at this really big park. And it was uh, for my friend's two kids because they're both born in August. And I texted him and I said, hey, what can I bring? And he said, nothing. I hate that. I hate when people throw a party or do something kind. And I say, what can I bring to your dinner party to your ex? And they say, nothing, I got it. No, I don't need to bring something for you. I need to bring something for me because I'm going to eat all your food and drink the things you give me and have a good time. And that's not free. I need to bring something for me. Jesus is saying, there's nothing you bring to this party. I have brought it all. Paul is saying that in Jesus is the fullness of all you need in salvation. But more than that, he says, it's not just for salvation. He says that you have been filled in him. And what he does there is set this context of relationship around our ability to be near to God. One theologian said, one of the most outstanding claims of Christian theology is that God has made himself known. In John 1, it talks about it in verse 14, and it literally says in the text that he took up residence among us. He camped with us when he didn't have to. The, the person of Jesus makes, a, makes, makes God known and relational because we can have a relationship with him. When he talks about in Christ, he's saying that we have a relationship with this God who provides the fullness of salvation. That's important. Because when we think about the next part of our scripture, it's important to remember the relational aspect of it. So he said, this is what it means to be in Christ. You're going to walk in him. This is what it means. First, he's all you need, and he can be known. That's important. 
2, and I'm going to read a good chunk of the scripture here again, starting in <clears throat> verse uh, 11 and 12. I'm just going to read it for us, and we're going to dissect it. It says, In him you also were circumcised, not, however, with the circumcision performed by humans' hands, but by the removal of the fleshly body, that is, through the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, you've been raised with him through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. And even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. If you're new to following Jesus and you read that, you pause and say, I have no idea what that just said. Something about circumcision and flesh, right? It's a really amazing text, and it's also really deep. So we're going to look at three themes that pop out of there that show us what we see in Jesus. First of all, he uses some common practices to make his point. He's going to talk about circumcision and baptism. Both of those things were identity markers, first for the Jewish followers and then for the New Testament followers of Jesus. So if you were a Jewish kid on the seventh day, you got circumcised. That was your mark that you were in the family of Abraham. If you found the family of Abraham later on and wanted to transfer your membership from the Canaanite group to the Israelite group, if you were a guy, you got circumcised no matter the age because that made you Jewish. It was an identifying marker for who you were. And then same thing with baptism. We don't get baptized because it somehow enhances or makes salvation full. We get baptized because it's, an, it's a marker to people about what Jesus has done in our life. It's an identity case to be made. It says we are now following Jesus. In the first century, Jewish people had ritual washings. And so what they would do was dunk people in water and raise them back up to life. And it symbolized death. And now you're a new person with a new identity, with a new family, a new tribe. And so Paul uses those constructs to make two cases and these two theological points that we see in Jesus. In Christ, we have two things, mortification, and which means basically that you're going to die to something, and vivification, you're going to be raised to something. And we see in our text, it talks about having been buried in baptism and you've been raised with him through the, uh, your faith and the power of God. And even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And this is the heart of the Jesus story of, of, of the story of God is that something broke and somebody had to fix it. And we're not the ones to fix it because we're the ones that broke it. And the story of God is him pursuing his people saying, I want to fix and redeem and restore. And in order to do that, you have to know what's broken in the first place. Following Jesus always requires a death to yourself first, to your desires second, so that we might align ourselves with God's best and God's desire and God's way that he developed this world to be. But here's the problem. Is we talk about sin often in the Christian faith, and sometimes sin gets detached from the person, the personalness of Jesus. So the idea of sin in the New Testament is a couple different words that round out our understanding on what sin is. And that's good, because we have a few different words to describe things that we love. I have lots of different words to describe my daughter, for example, based on how she's treating me in that given moment. Some are awesome and some are probably not appropriate for a Sunday morning, but I'm working through it as a dad. And so what the Bible does when it talks about the brokenness of the world is it gives us different word pictures for what it means to, to the world to be broken. So sin is one of them. It literally just means that you miss the mark. It means that God had a standard and we've fallen short or we've broken that standard and, and, and subsequently the world is not right anymore. So literally it means to miss the mark. But here's the problem with just stopping at sin is that sin, if it's described that way, isn't nearly as personal as sin really is. I don't know about you, but I, I've hunted in my past 
and I love to go hunting. Dove season opened a couple weeks ago, and I love to go skeet shooting. And every time somebody throws a skeet in the air and I shoot and I miss, I don't feel personally wronged when I miss. I'm like, I'll just get the next one. I missed this one one time. In the text, what Paul does is he uses another word for sin. He uses the word transgression. And in the Greek, that carries with it a highly relational aspect. It means that I have not just missed the mark of somebody, I've violated somebody. You see, in the Old and New Testament, it carries with it this understanding that I didn't just miss something, I have personally hurt you by my action. And oftentimes what happens is we don't tie together the personalness of our sin to God as we should because we miss the mark. It's like my, my kid right now. She is all sorts of two and awesome. And she's in this weird place of not realizing that her actions hurt people, but then she really cares about the people in her world. So, for example, um, lately, <laughs> when something happens and somebody exclaims from the other room, the other day my wife was in the kitchen doing something, and she said, Al, and my daughter got up, and she ran into the kitchen, and she just kept asking, are you okay, mommy? Are you okay, mommy? Over and over and over again. Fast forward two minutes, and we're you know, wrestling on the couch or whatever, and then she starts hitting people in the face, <laughs> and she's laughing, and they're like, this hurt me, but she doesn't understand that that also personally affected somebody. Tying together the personalness of how we hurt the people that we sin against is sometimes a difficult thing to do. What Paul is saying here is that, listen to this, your, your sin hurts God. One author said it like this. He said, we have not merely borrowed from God an unpayable debt for which we have appeal for bankruptcy protection, we have seized a realm and exercised a right that belongs to him. We have violated God. We have a committed uh, treasonous trespass, and we owe the debt of treason death. The story of the Bible is a story about how we went against a good God and said, we know better. And that wasn't just missing the mark that violated the character of the God, and it caused him to grieve. It says in Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It says in Genesis 6 and throughout the Old Testament that when we disobey God and we run the other way from a God that's loving, it does more to just cause him to shake his head. It, it, it hurts God because he cares, because he loves us. And so when we talk about death, when we talk about trespasses, when we talk about sin, when we talk about what it means to be in Christ, we have to understand that it's highly relational and that the sin that we bring into the world, the consequences of our action that cause pain, extend far beyond us. And Paul says, in Christ you have a death because there is brokenness. Know that. And may that understanding of the weight of your sin or your trespasses or your transgressions, might that motivate you to see the beauty of Jesus? Because he follows it up by saying, that's not the end of the gospel. Sin is never the end of the gospel. Death is never the end of the gospel. That's the point of the resurrection. If somebody tells you that the gospel ends with death, tell them to keep going. Because what Jesus said is, I have beat death and I offer that to the people that follow me. It doesn't end in shame. It ends in glory of God every single time. And so he says with his words in Colossians, nevertheless, in verse 13, he made you alive with him, having forgiven all of your transgressions. There's a couple of things we see there as we move from mortification or the death of something because the world was personally broken to vivification or the life of something because Jesus beats death. It happens in three different places. If you look at that verse, in 13, it says, having forgiven all your transgressions, he destroyed what was against us. A certificate of indebtedness expressed in the decrees opposed to us. He's taken it away by nailing it to a cross. And just real quick, 
And I know some of you have heard this before, but it's worth saying again and again and again. That's why Paul says that we're in Christ 164 times to think he thought that we'd forget it. So when it says that we have those three things, we have forgiven, he has forgiven all our transgressions. He's given us a certificate of indebtedness and he nailed it to the cross. It spells out our theology of atonement, what God did with our brokenness and when he did it. So it said literally that he forgave all our transgressions. And this is just a quick note that I need to be reminded of again and again and again. My sin is not bigger than God's grace. My brokenness will not break the grace of God. I need to be reminded of that because sometimes I look in the mirror and I think, man, I am not up to the standard of Jesus. I'm not. And we say it early and often at crossroads. We don't have to be perfect because Jesus was. So when he says that he's forgiven all our sins, he literally means all of them. The ones you're going to commit today and the ones you're going to commit tomorrow and the ones you're going to commit in two weeks. And if you say, Charlie, I'm not going to sin today. The one you're committing right now, those things, he says, I'm bigger than, and your sin is never bigger than my grace. Sometimes we just need to hear that because what he's doing is building into our identity. And if we start to believe that our sin is bigger than God's capacity to forgive, then we put ourselves in place of bigger than, greater than Jesus. And he's saying the fullness of salvation is in Jesus. And so he says that he's forgiven all your transgressions. And then he goes on to say that he wiped it away. It says in the Greek certificate of indebtedness. And that refers to like if you had a debt to somebody, they would take a piece of papyrus and they'd literally like wipe away the name there, the debt there, and you'd be blank, brand new, ready to go again. It's the idea of renewal. Sometimes we have a theology of like complete shutdown and start over. And really what the Bible does is have more of an etch-a-sketch theology, right? What I mean by that is he wipes you clear of the sin in your life, but he keeps the good things and says, now go and live like I created you to be because he created you with purpose and with a plan and with goodness to reflect his goodness. And so he says that I have forgiven your certificate of indebtedness, meaning that it has been wiped clear for you to start over brand new because Jesus covered it. And then he talks about when he did it. He said he nailed it to a cross. And this is just an important theological note. When did God forgive all your sins? When he died on the cross. All of them. All of them. I remember as a kid, you know, I come from kind of a, a mixed theological churchy background. My mom was Irish Catholic and my dad was Methodist. And, you know, I went to a Christian school and you have all these different influences coming in and you're trying to make sense of the world. For years there, I thought that like every night when I prayed, I needed to ask God to forgive all the sins that I did that day, you know? But, but in doing that, what we're saying, and there's some beauty in that, there's some contriteness in that, there's some goodness in that, just simply saying that I need Jesus every day. But, but Jesus forgave all of my sins on the cross. That's when atonement happened. So just remembering who we are in Jesus allows us to better construct an identity around who Jesus was. And that's why I use this uh, uh, circumcision and baptism. Because in both those things, you died to something and you were made alive to something. Circumcision, they literally cut off part of your body so that you could be new. And in baptism, in the first century, water was death. It was scary. You couldn't live under that condition and climate. And so when you got dunked under the water, it symbolized you were dying and pulled back up. It symbolized now you have a fresh slate, a blank page to start over and live in a new way, defined by your new people, which in the Old Testament construct was the Jewish people, or now is Jesus. So he's saying, in Christ we have fullness, in Christ we have death, and in Christ we have life, because that's the message of the gospel. No, might that shape who you're becoming? Might those influences shape 
give you, remind you of your identity in Jesus. And then he has an adverbial phrase to kind of drive the point home in verse 15. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities he made, a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them on the cross. It's military language. In that time in the history of the world, if you won a battle, you'd come back like a conquering king and you would drag your opponent behind you in an embarrassing way while all your people celebrated. It's this beautiful picture of the fact that God actually will is winning one day. And then he says he did it on the cross, which is my favorite part because when God wins, oftentimes people don't see him winning. There was a story that I read this week as I was kind of looking through different examples, and I came across how Winston Churchill responded when Pearl Harbor got bombed. And, and, and it was really interesting because most people would be really sad. Up until that point, it was a European war, World War II. And, and then when they bombed Pearl Harbor, Winston Churchill actually celebrated instead of mourned. He mourned the death of people, but he celebrated because he said, and I quote, he slept that night the sleep of the saved and thankful. He goes on to say, Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. As for the Japanese, they would be ground to power. All the rest was merely the proper application of the overwhelming force. United, we could subdue everybody else in the world. Many disasters, immeasurable cost, and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. That's what the cross did. The cross was a terrible thing. If you know anything about your history lessons, the cross was, to this day, people will say it was the worst way to die in the history of mankind. It was shameful and it was painful. All it was, every minute, was Rome showing you how powerful they were and how weak you were. And most times when it happened, you were bleeding and you were naked and you just sat there and had to live in it as people watched you, you know? Jesus took that moment, the ultimate death, the ultimate shameful death, and made it the ultimate sign of his victory. One author says the powers are reversed. At the place Rome used as the ultimate indignity, God reestablishes the dignity of all. I love that. It's the idea that, that future hope, if we understand our identity, changes present action, you know? Because we understand what Jesus has done for us, and we understand who we are in him. So understanding our identity, being reminded of it every day as our influence will shape how we live out our day-to-day or who we are becoming, you know? Today, the Cowboys are going to play, and it's church, so we can pray for the impossible. They might win. And um, I am a huge Cowboys fan. I've told you guys this before. I've tried to kick it out of my system as a grown man. I cannot. It's because my formative years were found in the 90s when you wore starter jackets and windsuit pants all day long. You know what I'm talking about? And I think it'd be interesting to know how the game goes. And so when I watch the game, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping up and down. I don't like people in the room with me. I use most of God's words. It's just not a good situation. But I try, I try my best to keep all my feels inside and act like an adult. There's been a couple times in my life when I haven't gotten to watch the game. And so people will text me or my brothers will text me on a group chat about how the game's going. And I'll find out the score before I watch the game. And on those games, when I know they're going to win, how I watch the game changes tremendously in the first, second, third quarters. You know that? What what Paul is doing is he's saying, if you know who you are in Jesus and you know the outcome of what Jesus did and you understand what he did on the cross, if that's your identity, it changes how you live every single day because influence shapes identity, which shapes action. And so when he starts 
by saying, continue to live your lives in him. That's where he begins. That's his theology. That's his understanding of who Jesus is. If you fully know what it means to be in Christ, that will become your identity. So because of that, he says this in verse six, be rooted in him, built up in him, and firm in your faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. So now he said, this is the theology of Jesus, and this is what it means to be in him. Might that shape and form and be your identity? So because you're in him, live like this. And there's four verbs we're going to look at right here as he gets really applicational with all the stuff he's given him so far. There's four verbs, rooted, built, firm, or stable, depending on your translation, and grateful. And to know anything about these four verbs, we have to know a little bit of the Greek New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. And so verbs had tenses and they had moods and they had voices. And so understanding those things helps us understand what was meant by what Paul was writing. So with each of these, we're going to look at the tense and we're going to look at the voice. So for example, if it was in the active, uh, active voice, it'd be something like, you know, I, I move the car. Make sense? Like I literally do the verb there. If it's a passive verb, it's something more like the car was moved. It still happened. I just had nothing to do with it. That's an important nuance in how we read this text. He starts by saying, you have been rooted and built up in him. And, and that word rooted, it's what's called a perfect passive in the Greek. Meaning, perfect meaning, it's an action that happened a while ago that continues to influence you right here and right now, right? A good example of that would be 9-11 is a great example. It's something that happened 20 years ago that, that continues to impact our day-to-day. We can't outrun the shadow of that tragedy that happened in our lives. It impacts who we are every single day. That's a negative example. I'll give you a positive one. Is I've seen it personally in my life. It's just becoming a grandparent for my mom is one of those things that, that she literally had nothing to do with, thank God, and that has impacted her every single day. It's a perfect passive, meaning that she didn't play a role in that process. I remember, I remember the first day that she took care of my kid. She watches the kid one day a week, and this is you know, a year and a half ago, more than that. And she grew up with boys, and so this is a daughter, and, and she went to my house, and then I got home from work, and I said, Mom, how did, how did the day go? And she said, this was the best day of my life. And I said, you know, I'm your son, right? Like, we've done this together. And anyway, it's the idea that being a grandparent now has forever affected who she is and who she's becoming in a really beautiful way, in a passive way. So when he says that it's being rooted in Jesus, what he literally means is that God rooted us or established us in the work of Jesus. You didn't do any of it, and that is changing who we are all the time because of what Jesus did. And he goes on to say, not just are you rooted, but you're built. And that moves from a perfect verb to a present verb, meaning that it's happening right now, but it's still passive, right? So what he means by that is that it is something that is impacting us, that's happening, that's unfolding right here, right now. But I I didn't do it all myself either. This is kind of like the coronavirus. I didn't ask that to come into my world and I don't really love masks that much, you know? But, but it's something that's currently affecting us that, that I didn't do. When he says you're built up in Jesus, we got to remember all of us overachievers that we are not running the sanctification race alone. God is building us too. 
this tension of, of we create disciplines and we live into who we are in Christ, but then God uses that to build us up. That's why we start every sermon and pray that God might do something this morning, because lest us forget that God works in and through us, and it's not just a matter of how hard we try. That's what grace looks like. So he says that you have been rooted and you have been built. You're constantly being built up in God through the work of Jesus as we pursue Christ together. And then he says that you are also firm. So be firm in your faith. Again, you might have the word stable there. That another is another present um, passive verb. So it's happening right now, but it's happening to us. And I love this. It's kind of the idea that the more that we pursue Jesus together, the more sure-footed we are in understanding who he is, the more we're able to run through life or walk through life and be able to kind of um, get through hard times and storms, whether it's physical or theological, and it might not impact, it might not impact or, or make us question the character of God. So my kid is two. And I remember what it was like to watch her start to walk for the first time. I think walking is a fantastic example of what it looks like to grow up in Jesus. Because you first start and you don't know your left foot from your right foot and you look like a drunk baby all the time and you're falling over and you just try to not hit your head on a corner of a table at some point. Now my daughter, she, she can run. And, and I don't know what it is. I don't understand it. But if we leave the garage door up, this little banshee runs out of our house at such a speed that I have to actually try and catch her. And she starts screaming, no, 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 down the block. Like she's the most well-fed captive in Dallas. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm sitting there thinking, what have we done to you outside of love you more than you've ever deserved, but you do deserve. That's a weird little paradox there. To, to make you want to leave our house so quickly, she runs so fast. And it's just a beautiful example of what stability looks like. And so Paul's saying, you're going to be rooted in Jesus because I'm working in and through you. You're going to be built up in him and you're going to become more firm. And these are all things that happen to you as the work of the spirit grows, as the influence of Jesus grows in your life because you know your identity in Christ. And he ends it by saying you also will be overflowing with thankfulness or gratefulness. This is the one that's different than all the others. This is not a present passive. This is a present active verb, which essentially doesn't mean it's happening to you. It means you're doing it. So unlike the other ones where he says God's going to work in and through, this one he says you're going to choose joy. You're going to choose joy. Every single day, every single moment, you're going to choose joy. It doesn't mean we're happy all the time. It means we choose joy. That's another sermon. So he says, followers of Jesus, here's what I want you to do. You're going to live your life in him. And this is what that looks like. You're going to be rooted. You're going to be built. You're going to grow in your firmness, stability, uh, confidence in your faith. And you're going to be grateful. And that's your decision. And that is your choice. Because if you fully understand what it's like to be, if you fully understand your identity in Jesus and grasp the beauty of the grace of God, it leads to only one place, and that's thankfulness. You might be saying, you know, Charlie, you don't, you don't know me. I've had a bad week. I've had a bad month. I've had a bad year. You don't know my past. And I don't have to because one thing I do know is that what grace does is grace means that my activity doesn't define my identity. This is what Paul's saying here. Our identity is defined by Jesus. Our life is defined because Jesus lives. 
And if we understand that and we grow in that understanding as we're built and as we're rooted and as we're steadfast in it, what happens is we are overflowing more and more and more with gratefulness because a fuller understanding of grace leads to gratefulness every single time. One theologian said, gratitude is the end of all human conduct. I love it. I love that this is where Paul lands the plane. Because he's writing to a group of people that have some theological questions. He's writing from prison. He's writing under the influence of a really bad king that wanted to kill him all the time. He's writing in a place that was hard. He's writing to a people that he's never met. If you remember a couple weeks ago, he's writing to people that he's bled for, that he wants to see thrive. He's writing to people under all these circumstances and saying, this is what an understanding of grace does as it starts in rooting your identity in Jesus as it ends in gratefulness. Choose joy. I think there's no greater sign of maturity and followers of Jesus than gratefulness in good times and in bad times. Again, it doesn't mean we have to like him. It means that we fully understand grace in every single moment and we see every day as a gift because we know ourselves. And so Paul reminds these people before he gets into more day-to-day applicational what it looks like to live out our in Christness, which is kind of the rest of chapter three and four. He's gonna say, remember that your identity is informing who you're becoming. Your identity shapes your actions. That's why he keeps saying, know who you are in Christ, because we often, often forget. So Paul says, don't forget who you are. And don't you forget how knowing who you are changes how you live every single day. May you be rooted, and may you be built, and may you be firm, and may you be grateful as you understand what it means to be in Christ. Let me pray for us. And I'm thankful. I'm grateful for the grace of Jesus. I'm grateful that my identity is not found in my actions, but the actions of him. I'm grateful that he's personal, and I'm grateful for the hope that he offers us. I pray that we can be a community of gratefulness that shows others the beauty of Jesus as we live that out. I pray that you today, Show us things that we can be grateful for if we're in a spot of unthankfulness in our world because there's a lot of reasons sometimes to see the negative. So Holy Spirit, I pray that we this morning grow in our confidence of what it means to be in Jesus and that as we understand the grace of God, our gratefulness grows as well. We pray all these things in his name.